You're listening to The Driven, the podcast that gives you the news and the views and the ins and the outs on electric vehicles. The Driven is presented by Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy and The Driven websites. It is brought to you by Solaray Energy, designing and installing solar and storage solutions so you can run your electric vehicle the smart way on solar. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of The Driven Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of TheDriven.io and also Renew Economy and its sister site, One Step Off The Grid. Well, electric vehicles are starting, albeit off a slow base, to get some traction in Australia. And one of the, or some of the organisations with a great interest in what happens in this energy transition are, of course, the motoring groups, and many of whom are pretty interested in what's happening, the choices being made by consumers, and also making sure that their members have got somewhere to charge. So joining us today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Rebecca Michael. She is the Head of Public Policy at RACQ, the Motoring Organisation in Queensland. Rebecca, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks, Charles. When did RACQ start getting really interested in electric vehicles? Well, we have 1.8 million members in Queensland. We have about 1.3 of those have our roadside product. And most people know that little trucks come out when we get into strife and they, um, you know, get us back on the road. Well, as we've seen um, a very slow uptake in electric vehicles, it means that the service that we would provide needs to change the skill sets, the um, type of repairs that we do. So probably over the last um, 18 months to two years, we've really been thinking about how we as an organisation can make that transition, how we can support the uptake of low emission um, vehicle technologies, but also how we can support our members as well as they choose to go down that path. So what sort of position do you take with this? Is this something that you're liking to, you, you want to embrace and you want to accelerate or are you just sort of happy to go on at whatever speed the market dictates? Well, I think we will be there to meet our the people who buy our roadside product will be there to meet their need now and when that need changes so we need to keep pace with the uptake of evs and make sure that you know our patrol fleet is reflecting that need however as you alluded to at the beginning it still is a very small proportion of motorists who are driving EVs. So it's important that, you know, we don't overcapitalise in that space to start with. However, we are really active, I guess, in supporting and partnering with others to help that transition uh, to low emission technologies through charges or through um, partnerships that actually support that and advocacy as well to actually um, make more favourable policy conditions for um, people who might want to buy an EV. Yeah. And do you get any sense of how many of your members are interested in electric vehicles? We've sort of seen various surveys around the place and there's sort of various figures there about half or slightly more than half might be interested in making electric vehicles their next purchase, but highly conditional on there actually being a model and a price that suits them. So what we find is that there are three factors that influence people in terms of their willingness to buy an EV. So that would be um, the availability of public uh, charging infrastructure because range anxiety is a real concern. It's about model availability and whether there is a vehicle out there, an EV, that would suit everyone's driving task and also its price. So we know that EVs still aren't um, you know, at price parity with internal combustion um, fueled engines. But what we are seeing is that as that price is coming down and as we're seeing more models and more infrastructure being put in place, people's willingness to actually uh, think about buying 
buying an EV is is dramatically increasing. And we've done our own research as well, and it's upwards of about 50 or 60% of our members are saying, telling us that they would seriously consider buying an EV for the next car. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, it sort of um, goes with the um, other surveys. So one of the things that you guys have done is that you've participated in the creation of the electric superhighway, which I think Queensland's claiming to be the longest electric superhighway, basically link a network of charges in a single line in a in a single state. So I think there's about 31 um, fast charges there. Um, what's, um, tell us about RACQ's involvement in it and why. Well, as I mentioned, you know, we're keen to, I guess, you know, operate or to help facilitate EV uptake in a number of different ways. And part of that was about how we could actually, you know, increase the availability of public charging infrastructure really to help people manage that range anxiety. Because in Queensland, we don't think about 100 kilometres. We don't think about 200 kilometres. We think, OK, I've got to get from A to B. I have to get from Brisbane to the Sunshine Coast or I've got to get from Cairns to Townsville. So that's how we think about travel, which is a bit different from our European sort of um, counterparts, <laughs> so um, who can travel, you know, four countries in that sort of distance. So for us, it was about making sure that, you know, particularly along the Bruce Highway, which is our major sort of, you know, tourism and, and um, you know, one of our major commuter corridors, that we actually had, um, you know, well-spaced out charging infrastructure available for people. Bearing in mind, most people want to charge at home. 80% of people say they prefer to charge at home, but that still mm -hmm. doesn't negate negate the need for public charging infrastructure. So we um, approached the state government um, and we got a really welcome reception from both the Department of Transport and Main Roads and Eureka, who operate the um, electric superhighway. Um, and we've partnered with them um, to actually, uh, you know, sponsor those 31 charges from Coolangatta right through to Port Douglas now. And in doing so, try to keep the cost down to make it affordable for people to charge. Mm. So you're actually charging about 20 cents a kilowatt hour, I think, is the standard rate for your fast charges. So is that something, is that like a subsidised rate? Is the actual cost of actually providing that facility higher than that? I mean, it might well be at the moment because maybe they're not used to that great extent because of the number of EVs out there. Um, and is that a cost that's likely to stay at that level for any particular time? I mean, I know NRMA, for instance, in New South Wales is actually offering them free. It's made a mm. marketing position to, to do that. But you also see other fast charges operated by private operators which are significantly more expensive. Yeah, so I mean, charging networks, you know, can range uh, the, the 20 cents per kilowatt hour, that is a cheap charging network. Um, you know, other charging networks, I think Tesla is over 40 cents per kilowatt hour to charge. Yeah, 52 cents a kilowatt hour, I think now for the superchargers. Well, there you go. Um, that is pricey, <laughs> isn't it? Um, but I think, um, so, you, you know, we have, you know, worked with the state government to try and keep, keep that price down. It's not subsidised in as much as it's a bit like public transport. The amount of capital investment to put these charges in through the electricity works and the actual hardware itself, you, and given how many charges we have, the payback is never going to happen really um, at this point of EV uptake. But it's just about setting a price point, I think, um, going forward about what you know um, is reasonable for um, EV charging. And in terms of the, the electric superhighway, it started off free. Um, government, like I said, have introduced, you know, a fairly modest charge of 20 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, but I expect that could change as, you know, we see, you know, upgrades mm. or, or changes to the electricity market or indeed even cha changes to road user charging or taxes and charges for EVs. 
Yeah. What do you hear about that? I mean, I, that's, that's going through in Victoria and people hate the idea, or at least the EV industry hates the idea. South Australia have punted it to beyond their next election. There's considerable debate happening in New South Wales about whether it's a good or a bad idea. What's happening up in Queensland? Well, um, it's not being introduced in Queensland and we are really um, supportive of our state government taking that approach. It's not to say that EV um, uh, users or um, motorists shouldn't at any point pay to use the network, but there are a lot of competing policy um, frameworks and priorities at the moment that it's a really comp- complicated issue. So mm. if you, if, even if you take put to one side the idea around whether they should pay, how they pay in that Victorian model is extremely problematic because what happens when you duck over the border into New South Wales, you know, exactly. you know, and it's it and it's all done as a manual task, you know. So, yeah. and not to mention the fact that um, EV operators are effectively, if you talk about a substitute or a surrogate for the fuel excise, they're paying to put electricity in their car. So, do, do we then start to look at where that revenue flows um, when we're talking about how? to implement a road user charge. So it's complicated and, and it's one of those things that I get asked about a lot and, and I can't really talk about it in like five or six seconds other than to say we need that sort of wholesale macroeconomic reform around road user charging for all users. No, well, I don't think anyone actually disagrees with that. It's really just the timing yeah. of it, as you say, and the structure of it. And also whether it's appropriate to do something like that now or actually sort of do things like lower taxes or make tax exemptions and things like that. Does RACQ have any other sort of policy wish list for electric vehicles at sort of state, local or federal government level? What would you like to see happen? Well, again, it's um, one of those ones where there's a lot of push and pull levers here. So while we don't support a state-based approach to road user charging for EVs, we do, like I said, um, support, you know, um, macroeconomic reform on all motoring and charges um, and taxes. So that's that one. But in terms of helping trying to incentivise EVs, definitely I think there is a lot of um, tax arrangements or, um, you know, sort of uh, tax incentives, whether it be about import tariff, luxury car tax, um, capital gains tax that we could actually um, manipulate to sort of make EVs more affordable to the right segments. So if we mm. offered a subsidy, and this is um, there's a lot of I guess debate around that, a subsidy is giving someone who at a high price point, where is that money going? That money is probably going to the dealer, right? Mm. So. And that may be a policy outcome that government would like to support. But what we are more interested in doing is actually seeing the overall price come down for EVs. So they approach parity, which encourages people to actually, you know, think about an EV for their next car. Yeah. And one of the things that seems to it seems to me, um, particularly hearing from some of the international car makers, well, all our car makers are international now, I think, because we've got no local industry, but they seem to be, I mean, it's not just subsidies they want, but in fact, it's, it, it, it may not be subsidies. They actually just want a sign from Australia that is actually really excited and enthusiastic about electric vehicles and it wants them to come there. And some of them feel like they're kind of not really welcome or wanted. And so I said, well, that country like looks like it's too hard. It's actually small. It's right-hand drive. The rest of the world is much bigger than left-hand drive, so we're just going to ignore Australia. And that seems to me to be a problem because it means we don't have the choice of vehicles and we don't have price competition. That's exactly right. So we have 28 models of EVs available in Australia and we've got, I think it's about eight of those under 65,000 and we Mm. should get another six models this year. 
But you make a really good point, Giles, in as much as the government has not sent out of the Paris Agreement, it has not set their um, CO2 emissions targets for light transport and for um, vehicles in Australia. And that creates confusion in our um, manufacturers overseas. And um, it's something that the car industry here would like because it actually gives certainty around that and it would open up a bigger market for vehicles overseas that are being made for those countries that have those um, CO2 emissions targets in place. So we are at danger where we have countries overseas who are banning internal combustion engines um, that obviously, and, and they're a bigger market that the manufacturers will build for that market could go two ways. We could become a dumping ground for um, internal combustion vehicles that they can't sell overseas, or alternatively, it may force the uptake or the, it may um, stimulate the EV market here in Australia because the only cars that are being manufactured overseas are, you know, are becoming EVs um, to meet that broader market. It, that all hinges again on the fact that we're right-hand drive. So, you know, we've got the UK in a similar situation, obviously, and in terms of, you know, being that um, a small minority of those right-hand drive markets. Mm. But it may be that they, because they've already implemented those bans or, or have um, signalled that they will implement those bans by 2030, I think it is now, that we may see an increase in EVs coming out of that. Mm. Is... Um the fuel standards or the CO2 standards mm -hmm. um, for internal combustion cars, is that something that um, RACQ supports? Because one of the... Um... <laughs> You know, one of the problems about not having any of these targets is that um, people do say that we've already become a t dumping ground, that we've got really heavily polluting cars. It actually kills quite a few people just from health impacts, just from the um, the particulates that um, get broadcast in, in on, on the city roads in particular. And we actually pay a much higher fuel bill because the engines are so inefficient. Look, absolutely. Um, we do support, um, you know, the introduction of those fuel quality standards. And it's part of that broader policy framework that I was talking about before. All, it all comes together to actually shape how we transition to that low emissions future using, you know, lo low emissions technology for transport. And it all requires careful consideration. We have seen that cars have become, um, a lot of cars have become more fuel efficient. And that's why we've seen the, um, the fuel excise generally decline, even though we have such a, um, the revenue from that, even though we have such a low uptake of EVs. But more needs to be done in a comprehensive way. The government's recent Future Fuels, um, a paper, for example, that came out, we need to, it didn't deal with those issues about managing the transition. Because what people aren't thinking about is that, or what government doesn't seem to be thinking about, rather, people maybe, um, is that if we start to change, um, or we start that uh, you know, to change the mix from, you know, um, a, a fuel to EV. What happens to those sectors and the infrastructure that supports those sectors that rely heavily still on fuels and, and, mm. and diesel? So, you know, agriculture and the airline sector, for example, and the resources sector, they far exceed light vehicle or even commercial vehicle use for, um, for um, petrol, you know, usage or fuel usage. So, you know, we need to manage that transition to ensure that we still have a stable, um, market for those sectors, even though we're seeing an increase in EVs and non-internal combustion engines. Mm. Sounds like you were a bit disappointed with the um, future fuel strategy paper um, issued by the federal government. Um, what's been your sort of the response that you've been getting with your sort of dealings with them? And, and, and what are you telling them in your submission if, if you are actually um, giving them a submission? 
Yes. So, look, we are asking for the federal government to take a holistic view on on future fuels and to um, consider all those policy settings and frameworks which will help shape the outcome um, collectively so you don't get any perverse outcomes by not managing the one part of the um, equation or the ecosystem. So we're looking for that more consistent. And we also think that there's an economic piece there that's missing about managing the transition. We don't want people with stranded assets like um, LPG. You know, we need to make sure that um, motorists are being supported, particularly because, you know, the average age of a vehicle is um, in our fleet is still 10 years. Mm. You know, so we need to think about how, you know, um, we build a secondhand um, EV car market, how we transition, what happens to service stations, um, where are our EV charges going? You know, are we going to start requiring new houses to be built to have a built-in EV charger? You know, so... It, and that doesn't even get into the realm of, you know, solar and bi-directional charging and um, how we might be able to build out climate change resilience by sort of having, a, a, I guess, a more considered view of these issues. So, yes, to say I was disappointed was to probably put it lightly, but, you know, we, we are um, going back to government and, and asking them to not put it in the too hard basket, basically. Yeah, maybe we could summarise your, summary, your your submission as wake up, guys, and uh, <laughs> we'll go on from there. Hey, look, getting back to the network, um, the uh, electric superhighway, um, so you've actually released some statistics um, the other day after the first two years of um, use, I think it was, um, mm. was the first year of use. So yeah. um, it says some interesting things. It talks about the time of charging on an average about 34 minutes, I think. It talks about the average cost, um, just $3, thanks to that 20 cents a kilowatt hour, um, which is, um, that sort of figures about right. That's about 15 kilowatt hours, which is probably what you get in a charge for about 30, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, anything else of interest? I mean, obviously the usage is increasing as um, more EVs hit the road. Yeah, look, it is. And and I did, um, in preparation for today, um, I had a bit of a look and saw that, you know, we did see, um, what, 9,600 charges or so in 2020. But since March last year until March this year, that's already in excess of 11,500. So oh. it's growing. It is growing. And when you think mm. about the fact that Queensland still isn't um, that great when it comes to buying EVs, probably because, you know, we've got a, a lot of bush and a lot of um, space and a lot to travel, um, that's, that's pretty good, actually actually, to think that we're seeing that growth. Um, and we're also seeing a growth in the number of EVs registered as well. So, look, I think we're a long way off some of the bullish predictions that we've seen bantied around, but we're definitely on our way. Hmm. What did, when do you sort of look at the future? What do you see? I mean, do you... Look, you've got... You know, you've got the issue of um, EVs hitting price parity and what that will do to the market mm. when that finally happens and when that happens. You've got, as you've mentioned, the UK banning um, the sale of petrol and diesel cars. Um, um, Norway doing it by 2025, the UK doing it by 2030, other countries kind of in between. You've got manufacturers talking about various you know, times when they're going to stop making EVs. It seems to me, I mean, like when you sort of say, oh, well, there'll be 50% share of new car sales in 2030, um, on EVs and you think oh, okay that sounds like a lot but then if you think of all the other things that might be happening the parity the ban on new petrol and diesel cars in some countries and decision by manufacturers not to make them anymore it could actually be significantly higher than that. It is one of those ones that it's a bit like autonomous vehicles and projections around that. It, it seems to change every year and it seems to get pushed out. And look, there's good reason for that. I think EV um, uptake is impacted 
by um, sovereign factors and, you know, regulation and policy. They are huge drivers um, to, you know, and predictors of uptake. Um, and I also think, uh, to your point about price parity, that comes largely down to we've seen a, an incredible drop in the price of lithium and the um, weighted battery packs. And so mm -hmm. I think because of that, we, we are looking at about 2025 for price parity. But that's not to say that they won't get cheaper. There's some incredible innovations in batteries at the moment, which it, uh, just blows my mind. Um, mm. So I think, you know, we could be in a situation where an EV is a more um, economic of a, like alternative, um, affordable alternative for people. But at the end of the day, there's probably... I look to two sources really. So overseas, I think Bloomberg are pretty good at um, sort of casting out for that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, they've even still got it only at 28% global by 2030, um, with most of that probably three quarters being in China and Europe. Um, mm. And then in Australia, obviously, it's still a lot less than that. Um, AMO, so the Australian Energy Market Operator, they've recently, um, I guess, recast their predictions and they have... 500,000 EVs by 2030, but that's only 3% of the um, projected fleet. So it doesn't look like uh, like uptake will probably follow the trajectory that people initially thought. That said, sovereign factors, price of lithium and batteries yep. could change that. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Actually, AEMO are doing their next um, forecast and um, they're actually dialing a new scenario. I mean, all depends mm. on scenarios and certainly different factors. And one of the scenarios that they're actually doing is 100% sales of fleet right. by, say, early 2030. So it'll be interesting to see if that comes along. I'd love to talk about autonomous vehicles, but before that, I've just got a couple of quick questions about mm. your network and your roadside assistance. Your network now, you've got the electric superhighway that pretty much just goes up and down the coastline. What are you thinking of in terms of next? Is that your responsibility of the state government filling in those gaps and maybe actually going inland a bit? What's, what's, what's the strategy there? Well, I think the, the Queensland government's um, rationale for getting involved in setting up the Queensland Electric Superhighway was to provide, I guess, that um, that baseline network. And they've done a fantastic job of that. You know, it literally stretches from one end of the state to the other. And I think, you know, phase two of that has started to move a bit inland. So gone as far as Toowoomba um, inland and a few of those other sort of, you know, Gympie and other places along the way. Um, RACQ ourselves, we've also looked at supporting um, destinations destination charges so and and trying to help the tourism industry by locating locating those charges in and around um, tourist um, hotspots um, and we've partnered again with the Queensland government on that as well as a range of um, hosts in in far north Queensland so we've done that as a pilot and they're free charges they're they're um, just uh, uh, AC charges so they just trickle charge really but it's about people sort of you know pulling up somewhere you know like the Coranda Sky Rail and spending a couple of hours there and charging their car while they're doing it. So um, yeah. it's about... And, and, yeah, And an overnight commutation. just sounds that, you know, if, you, if you're travelling, yeah. having a, doing a bit of tourism, we just did that in Tasmania recently, and, okay, those distances are smaller, but it was actually the perfect way to do it. Um, you just like, kind of cruise around and just plug in overnight. Um, we had to throw a few extension cores through through bathroom windows <laughs> and things like that because not everyone's very prepared, but um, it's, it's, it's eminently doable. It is. And look, so, you know, it's about meeting, putting the infrastructure in to meet the, you know, the task and the region. So we've got the destination charges and, you know, potentially we'll look at, 
at sort of rolling them out further in, in, in other areas. And we've also, um, as part of um, our relationship with ChargeFox, we have Queensland's only um, ultra-rapid um, charger, 350 kilowatt, and that's at Toomble Shopping Centre. And that's part of that ultra-rapid network running from Adelaide through to Brisbane. Mm. Uh, but as you point out, you know, it's, it's not just about the coast. It's how do we actually stimulate EV tourism and EV infrastructure further inland. And it's definitely something we're thinking about. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I go, I drive. Uh, I've got an electric vehicle. I live in northern New South Wales, and I usually just sort of um, go down the coast road, and, and that's easy, bit of a no-brainer. But uh, in the recent floods, I had to go inland, and went, oh, how's, how's this going to work in an electric car? In the end, it was fine. And my big concern was that there was actually just single charging spots at various towns on the inland route, mm. and I was worried. Oh no, I'm going to have to queue there. But as it turns out, I didn't actually see another electric vehicle for the whole for the whole thousand kilometres until I got to Sydney. So, um, but um, it was interesting. Are, are you going to be sort of doubling up and tripling up on those existing stations is that is that what's going to be happening as more EVs are rolled out well, the existing stations already have a DC charger and as well as an AC charger oh, okay. with, with two chargers running off both of those. So um, they're pretty well um, spec'd at the moment, Sounds I well think. Equipped. Yeah, yeah for, for, the, for the demand. But it really is, you know, you've got to think about um, some pretty rough and, and harsh terrain going further inland in Queensland. And, you know, just I think probably the best opportunity is working with councils to try and, yeah. um, you know, put up EV chargers, you know, further the inland and have you know go into an arrangement where they help sort of manage those yeah now tell me about the roadside assistance we had a story um a couple of weeks ago about um the your roadside um the racq roadside assistance and it's now got a it's they've got like was it fast charging or just normal charging facilities um for any electric vehicle drivers who've um run out of puff yeah, well, again, it's about making sure that we're meeting what motorists need to get them out of trouble. And so we have a patrol that has a mobile um, a charger on board that can get you, um, it'll get you going again, um, probably with sort of about 30 kilometres. Or, or and that's about just sort of getting you home wherever you need to go. Um, where we've um, had instances, though, where the vehicle uh, is, um, you know, that charger hasn't been available, the vehicle's got to be towed. We, we came up against that issue of, okay, well, when we get to the um, mechanic, how do we get the vehicle off the car? So, you know, we just thought... <laughs> no, it's, it's actually, yeah, it just doesn't roll off, does it? <laughs> no, no. So how do we get it off the truck? And so, you know, again, I think uh, necessity is the mother of all inventions. So we've got um, those trickle charges now that when you um, get the vehicle onto the truck, we plug it in and we get it, we basically just get enough charge to get it off at the mechanics so they can, um, you know, start it up and start working on it from there. So we have a, um, a small fleet of um, uh, tow trucks that have that capability and we have one patrol at the moment. But, you know, we're also looking overseas for prototypes for um, mobile charging units that aren't as um, bulky as the one that we have in the back of the patrol and that, you know, we can sort of use to get people started as well. Hmm, fascinating. Now, autonomous driving. Um, now, Tony Sieber is a futurist from um, Stanford University in California, and uh, one of the most read stories that we've ever published on you know, our websites was his prediction that by 2030, you probably won't own your vehicle because um, everything will be autonomous, it'll be robo-fleets, it'll be you know, <laughs> robo-taxis and things like that. Now, um, Tony's been pretty accurate with some of his predictions, particularly with solar. He might have been getting a little bit ahead of himself um with um with the autonomous fleets but it is 
it is it, it is actually something isn't it i mean how are you looking at it and how do you think it might affect the transport equation in queensland and the rest of australia i imagine that it might be something that exists in cities and town centers or something like that but um but who knows yeah, Tony sounds like quite the futurist. Um, that is, uh, they're, they're bullish uh, predictions if I've ever heard them and usually made by CEOs of autonomous vehicle companies um, to drive up their share price. But I think um, when it comes to EVs, we've got a really long, oh, sorry, autonomous vehicles, we've got a really long way to go. Um, you, you know, we have level two vehicles driving around Australia at the moment. And uh, there's so what's a, the level? what's the level two vehicle? They're, they're adaptive cruise control automatic automatic braking lane keep assist um you can get higher order level two uh lower order level three where you know the vehicle is making a lot of those decisions for you um and overseas you have got level three vehicles operating um you know in, in public roads um particularly in the us and some parts of the uk but they um only in certain environments, um, whether that be geo-mapped environments or um, very, uh, I guess, non-complex environments like freeway driving and things like that. The We've done trials here in Australia, and I think I'd start by saying that autonomous vehicles have huge potential, huge potential for improving road safety outcomes, for addressing, addressing transport disadvantage, um, and also for people, you know, who might have medical conditions and those kinds of things who haven't been able to drive. Uh, they also may provide a cost-effective alternative um, to mass transit in certain situations. So definitely the potential's there. But our experience so far is that there's quite a few limitations as well. And I think the first, the main limitation, and it's why some manufacturers are saying they might go from level two straight to level five, is issues associated with the vehicle handing back control to the driver. Mm, and that's interesting. So you might actually think they're going to be, if, if you're going to, not going to make the leap between having a vehicle which becomes steadily more autonomous and then completely autonomous. You're actually going to make a leap to special vehicles which will be distinctly, distinctly made for special purposes which will be autonomous. Is, is yeah, that what you're suggesting? I'm thinking that you'll see autonomous vehicles rolled out in commercial settings much quicker than you'll ever see them rolled out on the roads. Um, there's a wow. productivity gain there that will underwrite the investment and they're sandboxed environments. So that might be a mining, um, you know, sort of situation where, you know, it's it's sandboxed, it's networked, it's mapped, and, you know, the autonomous vehicle will be able to run very well there. But in mainstream um, road environment, extremely challenging to, to deploy a vehicle, not in the least for the mapping, but also the way that the, um, the environment changes. And the, um, our trial of an autonomous vehicle has shown that they do struggle to deal with not only complexity in the environment, and I'll tell you, a blade of grass sent ours, you know, um, screeching to a stop, um, <laughs> Oh, but really? all... what happened? Tell, don't tell us. <laughs> well, well, we uh, did our trial on Karagara Island um, with the support of Redland City Council, so they were fantastic. And um, our there was no uh, roadside curb and channel there. And what we found was is that the autonomous vehicle actually, when it rained heavily, the grass would grow onto the roadway, and the vehicle couldn't deal with it. It thought that something was in the roadway, so it just kept coming to a screeching stop. And so the so, poor, so, there's so much was... to be done. <laughs> well, the poor the the poor council had to 
run around with a whippersnipper every week trying to tidy up the roadway. So it became a very expensive exercise. But um, yeah, so I think um, I think there are some limitations there, um, and we just need to make sure that that technology is safe, and we just need to do a lot more work with the regulation as well around that. But you know, the work's happening. We're getting there, and you know, RACQ is really um, you know proud to be part of Queensland's first autonomous vehicle trial. Yeah, it sounds like you're a bit sceptical then about sort of some of the, um, the the Tesla drivers who forked out ten thousand dollars for um, you know for their vehicle to be upgraded through software to be autonomous at some stage. Um, that might not be happening anytime soon in Australia. I think um, Elon Musk has uh, he predicted that there'd be a million robo taxis on the road in t- by 2019. Um, there's not, but there's a lot. I think there's about 45 running around um, uh, certain provinces of China. So I think, you know, he he generally is on the right track and, um, yeah, we'll see where that goes. A bit over-egged. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Um, and so just getting back to RACQ, I mean, how many electric vehicles does RACQ have? And do you have one yourself And uh, as a company car or a private one? Um, and, and, and what are you planning well, I have been asked this before, actually. It is it's quite interesting. So we have a um, we only have a small fleet of vehicles. Our patrol, we did an analysis to see whether we could convert our patrol fleet to electric vehicles, and there's not one on the market at the moment that would do that job, mainly because of the weight that's in the back. Um, mm. So unfortunately, that's not an option for our patrol fleet. Although we are always, you know, reevaluating that that um, information in terms of our um, passenger fleet we only have a, a couple of cars um, and we have two that are I think we have two that are full electric and two that are hybrid so um, you know that would probably be more than 50% of our you know um, uh, sort of passenger fleet me personally I drive a Honda CRV which I've had since 2017 um, and I think I genuinely think I'll make the move for the next for my next vehicle. I think that you know you've got the um, Hyundai SUV that's come out now that I think it'll meet the task that I have, which is two very big teenage boys with cricket and football bags. So <laughs> if I can fit them in the back, I'm good to go. Um, yes, and um, I think the new ones, if you're talking about the Ionic 5, which is on its way, um, yes, it's even got a PowerPoint in it, so you can plug in your house in case there's an outage, and um, it's, um, it sounds pretty cool. Um, it sounds like um, RACQ should actually get in an early order for some cyber trucks for its um, on-road vehicles. Yeah, maybe maybe we should. We really we really did have a look at it. And I think that the um the tow trucks actually have more potential for um for becoming um fully electric before our yes. patrol. Um yeah. but yeah. Interesting stuff. Um well look, thank you very much for joining the Driven Podcast. Um good luck with all your endeavors there on Electric Superhighway and sort of um um and the policy advocacy and uh we look forward to um talking again. Thanks, Charles. The Driven Podcast was brought to you by Solaray Energy. Solaray Energy has been designing and installing solar and storage solutions for electric vehicle owners since EVs first arrived in Australia. There's a smarter way to run your EV from Solaray. Visit solaray.com.au forward slash the Driven.